HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, everyone. This is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green, editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. We'll talk all things wine, and we'll review the year in wine with Josh. And you gotta love Josh, because he towed along about three bottles of wine. So we're going to get into that during this show. Um, We'll also taste during our weekly wine sip. Some of the wines Josh brought in, and I brought in a Sonoma Pinot. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh, Josh Green has been the editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine since 1986 and went on to purchase the magazine in 1989. Besides publishing and editing, he also tastes and reviews California, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, Portugal, Rioja, Australia, New Zealand, and South African wines for the magazine. And when we talk to him, we'll make sure that list is still accurate, any additions or deletions. Wine and Spirits magazine is for consumers and professionals alike. 
covers established and up-and-coming regions and producers, the art and science of viticulture, industry happenings, and food and wine pairings. Wine and Spirits has also received five James Beard Awards. And I'm not sure there's a lot of magazines that's, that's received that many awards. So welcome to the show, Josh Green. Hey, Sam. It's great to be here. So let's go backwards. Are you still tasting all those countries, those wines? I've given up California to Luke Sakura, really? who's in our West Coast office. Um, when but, did you do that? Well, he's been taking it over for the last couple of years. Okay. But I still cover Napa Valley. Okay. So I go out there every other month to taste wines with Luke. And California was, used to just be Napa Valley. Well, now no, it's, no. The, but, there was a lot of focus there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's always been, Napa Valley's always been the driver right. in terms of marketing, in terms of image. Um, but there's amazing wine coming from the foothills, from the right. far coast. Yeah, right. incredible stuff. Now, the James Beard Award, you could, you could brag about that a little. I mean, there's not a lot of publications wine-specific. Well, we've always been really focused on the kind of edu- the kind of educational work that we do editorially, and I think that early on that really appealed to the James Beard judges. And we, the first one we got was, I think, back in 94, 95 for an issue. Michael Bonnetty's actually got it, um, and he was running, he was the, a partner in the Miri Restaurant Group at the time. And he, That's the Drew Nieperon, exactly. Robert De Niro, yeah, he was, Grill, exactly. Those guys. Yeah, he was Drew's partner, um, and he did an article for us as part of an education issue that we did, which was all about tasting wine, and his was about tasting Burgundy, and that's the first one that got an award. But a lot of people writing for us have gotten awards because of the kind of in-depth right. coverage we do, really of terroir, right? Which is sort of the it's the good style to the magazine. Right. That's what, what the magazine is about. That's a good yeah. word. All right, so I want to get through something quickly. I always want my listeners to know where our guests came from. Um, and it's always a journey to where you are now. So what I want you to do is, I know you started drinking a wine at a young age and then eventually moved closer towards it and then got to the magazine. We'll get there and then we'll start busting bottles open and sure. we'll cover a lot of stuff. So, so quickly, there was an attraction to wine, you know, which led you to... I was never really conscious of the attraction to wine. I, I spent my, I guess, summer when I was 12 in a little town in Galicia in Spain. Um, Why were you, did your family travel there? No, or? my father was a dentist and he had a client, <laughs> he had a patient who came to dinner with his family and they had a son one year younger than me. And I guess they were, they, they were sort of interested in bringing someone over who could ah. kind of mentor their son. And so my parents paid for the flight, and I stayed with them. They had it was an amazing summer because all we did was play soccer every day and eat. And they had one, they had three maids, one who just spent the entire day cooking. So we would have three or four hour meals in the afternoon, and then take a siesta. Was was it a wine centric household? You know Absolutely. the way you hear stories in Italy. There's wine at every meal. Was it similar? This there? was 1971 or 72, and and it was when you know Franco was still in power, and he would drive by because he he lived a little bit beyond where we were where we were living, and it was a very different Spain then. But because it was a different Spain, in the afternoon you drank wine, and everyone did. And as a kid, you were allowed to drink wine, and so I that's really the first exposure that I got to it. And then when I was in college. 
I worked at a wine shop in Lenox, in, actually in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Where you went to college where I lived for many years, in Princeton. I went to Princeton, yeah. You, you lived in Princeton. I lived in Princeton. Oh, great I ran time. a radio station in Philadelphia, so I'd commute. Fantastic. So Yeah, no, I lived beautiful. in Princeton for 25 years. But my family had a place in Lenox, and so I spent every summer in Lenox. Uh, and, a summer place? Yeah. And now I now actually I live right by there. That's where so my house my is. kids went to Mackinac. Oh sure, in Lenox, yeah, which is right across from Tanglewood. Which is Mackinac is exactly how I got into the wine business. Is it? Yep, because I was delivering, I was making deliveries for Knee James, which um, was a great, an amazing store, store in Stockholm. Gourmet yeah. cheeses, a Nobby, lot of wine. Nobby Knee James, and um, his son had just opened a wine shop. And I was I was driving right past Lake Mackinac, right past the right past the um, the camp. The there. camp is on the lake, and right it's right by Wheatley, which is an amazing right. place where I, I actually worked there for for a summer. Still there as a as a sommelier. But I was making deliveries. I was about sixteen years old or something, and drove Nobby's truck into a tree. Oh. <laughs> because you know those S curves yes. right around there. Yeah, I was looking it's behind. The country. To see, yeah. Well, I was looking behind to see that I'd left the trunk. I'd left the back of the. And of in the, a split second, you in were a in a split tree. Second, yep, I was in a tree, and so Jeez. Nabi said, "I'm not going to fire you, but you go work for my son. I don't want to see you anymore." That's <laughs> so that's how I got into the wine business, and I worked with Jimmy Nijame for years. And then did he school you a little there? A lot. Like you became yeah. aware of varietals. I used to bring, used to bring bottles home from the from the bins in the in the store. You were and, inquisitive at that point. Oh, absolutely. Like, let me try this. Let me try that. No, I still remember. I brought home a bottle of Zacamesa Zin, which I loved, and I still remember that particular wine from you know, God, thirty five years ago wow. or something. Um, so I did that. Then when I got out of school, I worked at Wheatley as a sommelier for a summer. When just when the Simons bought it. And that's an extreme. That's an extraordinary place. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes, but it's just it's an, an old, stately, yeah. not an inn, but well, it was. It was a. It was a cottage, right? Um, in the 19th century, and um, all of the conductors for Tanglewood usually stay there. So I would be serving wine to the conductors and and chatting with them, and it was great. Interesting um, crowd. Very interesting crowd. Um, Lenny Bernstein used to come in when I was bartending. And he thought I was someone else and actually came up and gave me a big kiss right on the lips. And then he said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that wasn't you. I, I mean, I said, uh, excuse me, you know, what's going on here? He said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was somebody else. <laughs> He's hard not to recognize. So I guess you figure it out. I knew who he was. He had that <laughs> big gray hair. That's funny. But um, anyway, so this magazine was a magazine that came as a client when I was working as a, at a company that financed magazines. And I got involved with it. Um, set up an East Coast office for them, and then eventually, as you say, I bought it from them. So, so were you consulting, eventually I was, working? I was originally consulting. Bought? For two years, I was consulting, and then I basically ran the office for three years, and then I bought the magazine from the original Did owner. Did you get a sense then this is a pretty good business or the potential and upside? No, it was more that I really wanted to I, – I came out of school wanting to be a writer, and There's your platform. I, exactly. I saw it as a way. I really liked the idea of writing about wine, and I saw it as a way to do that without having to be battling editors all the time. So the first few years you were there, not an owner, mm -hmm. what'd you do mostly? Write? Ran it, you said? No, mostly we were doing the my partner and I were doing the business management for the magazine as well as setting up tastings. In New York, because they were based in, in Berkeley, California, actually Albany, the next town north. Um, and they needed, they needed people here in New York to set up tastings and run imported tastings for them. 
so I was inviting guests in to judge, and, and eventually I became sort of aware that, well, I could probably taste along with them, and then decided that I would sit in on panels and then began to run panels. And I want to get into that with you, because you, the magazine tastes a lot of wine. We taste a lot of wine. I think there's an art to it, and you probably perfected it. But when you got there, and I guess when you took over the reins, what were... The, what were the changes that you made immediately? Were you wait, waiting to make changes? Did they need them? Were there obvious things to do? When I, when I bought the magazine, I did a few things very differently than it had originally been established. Right. It was established with winemakers as tasters. And when I took over, I said, no more winemakers tasting their own wines. We're just going to have sommeliers and retailers tasting wines, only buyers, not so sellers. So back me up on that. So the way a wine was tasted and rated or written about was the winemaker that made the wine? In, no, no, no. But in California, the winemakers were being invited to taste oh, okay. on the panels. I got it. No, no, no. There were, there were right. writers who were charged I, with— My bad. I understand. There were writers charged with writing them up. But at the time, it was a star system— and the stars were based on how much the panel liked the wines. So we put in place um, a team of critics. And the, we still have the panels, but the panels are made up of sommeliers and retailers. And it's their job to either recommend or not recommend a wine. And then it's the critics' job to taste the wine and rate it, the so ones that they recommend. a screening panel. Exactly. Then the critics... Taste the wines that were screened by the panel. And then they would rate them. Now, the star system was a one, two, three, four, five star type it was thing? A, it was three stars, yeah. Three and, stars? And we found Did you it, shift to something else? We shifted to the 100-point scale because... Which you're not a huge fan of. No, I have very mixed feelings about it. I Why? Think, I think that it's abused. Um, and I think that the posi- for us, the positive side of it is that it, if you look at the performance of wines over time... It's really valuable to parse the best out of, you know, to take the best out of the rest. So we use it most effectively to generate the list for our 100 best wineries performing for the year. And we say, okay, these, wine, these wineries had the most consistent scores. They had the most percentage of wines recommended. They had the highest rated wines. So we, we can sort of look at their performance in a number of different ways. And if we just had one, two, There's or three a historical stars, track record there. Exactly. It gives us a more precise way to look right. at it. On the other hand, individual ratings are somewhat suspect because a wine can be in really good shape one day and really bad shape the next. It can be... Um, the taster can be in really good shape one day and really bad shape the next. Um, it's, it's very difficult to be a precise and consistent taster. And we, I believe, have a great team, but all of us have flaws. And we'll recommend something or miss something one day. And so, so to rely on individual scores, I think, is a mistake for anyone. Um, also, most people are using the 100-point scale knowing what the wine is. We, we taste blind, so we only, we only rate wines that are recommended by our panels and tasted in our offices blind. And that means that it's really, um, it is a very subjective opinion because we're, we're just basing it on, on what the wine shows to us at the time, but we're really looking at how the wine describes where it's from and how exciting it does, how how exciting it makes us in, in doing that. Um, 
So it's it's really a, a way of, of trying to track how precisely the wines express where they're from. Terroir. We, yeah, we tell people in the, on the panel, we tell them this is a Rioja from 2010, um, and their labeling is a Grand Reserva, whatever. And that's all we'll tell them. Um, so how much does it taste like a Grand Reserva Rioja? And why does it taste that way? And, and what does it remind you of in terms of Grand Reserva Rioja? It's a, so, it's a better approach. Yeah. So let's just get into that a little more. So annually you taste upwards of 10, 15,000 wines? 15,000 wines. 15,000 wines. We do about 10,000 wines in our New York office and about 5,000 wines in our San Francisco and office. And you described before, and I'll reiterate it and tell me if I'm right, you'll take those wines, you'll have a group of people taste them. Anywhere from 3 to 10 to 12 people, yeah. And move forward what they feel are the better wines? Not better. Not, the yeah, ones that, that they would tell someone to buy. Okay. So Recommended wines. The, the ones that they would personally recommend <clears throat> to a friend to buy. So a majority of the panel has to be willing to say, yes, I would tell someone to buy this wine. So I guess the obvious question right now for me is you taste 15,000 wines. How many, approximately how many wines are rated? Is that Anywhere a secret from, or anything? No, 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 no. It's, it's all, um, everything that we taste, we post on our website. So we have a searchable database on our website with all the wines that we've tasted, all the recommendations on there with their scores, and everything else within not recommended on it. Right. So you, you could do cabs, and there yeah. could be a 78-point wine and a 98-point. Yeah. You tasted both. You rated them. A and, little... And we don't really ever rate anything 78 points. Right. And it just doesn't... Which I mean, is not fair not, for me to well, say. Well, it's not, it's not recommendable at that point, right. at that level. But an 84-point yeah. wine is sure. serviceable, maybe yeah. relative to the cost. No question. Justifiable. But well, it's we, an 84... Yeah, and we don't really look at cost when we're scoring. Okay. We only look at cost when we're deciding what to include in the print magazine. So we look at the median price for a particular category of wine... And anything that's recommended that falls below that median price, we consider a best buy. And then we'll con- if it gets an 88, an 87, 86, 84 even, if it's really inexpensive, right. we'll then include it in the print magazine because it's a good buy. Um, but for anything, when we're tasting, we don't know the, the prices of the wines. Right. Which is a good thing to know because not to, not to know. Yeah. Because some wines should be... Some ones you might not recommend because they're two hundred fifty or four hundred dollars. Other ones you might not recommend because they're fifteen dollars, and right. you and you think, well, it's just not very interesting. But actually, it shows really well against the two hundred dollar bottle of wine. Right? Do you are you tasting as many or more wines than other publications? I I have no like. There's Wine Spectator and. Robert Parker. Most of I the mean, other that sounds like a lot of wine. Most of the other magazines are tasting a lot of wine as well. In fact, some of them I would think taste more than we do. Okay. But I don't know if anyone is tasting as much in the style right. that we're tasting it. And a lot of a lot of the other magazines, whether or not they cop to it, they are tasting in cellars and rating the wines in cellars. And so even though they'll say that we only taste wine blind, then they'll then they'll say in the tasting note, taste it in a cellar. And right. How do you taste it blind in a cellar? It's not really... You know. I've, I've been a collector for many years, and I've been reading wine publications for a long time. And I have to admit to your credit 
I don't know the right adjective. I don't think eclectic is the word, but it's a very well thought out list. Mm -hmm. I think it's really a list that's driven by the terroir and the way you taste stuff versus just, you know, the top cabs or whatever. I think for my listener, if you're looking for a diversity of wines in any varietal, I'm pretty sure you'll find more of it in Wine and Spirits than a lot of other magazines. Well, thank you for saying that, Sam. But and I, I think, think that, that's you know, fair from somebody you know, on my side to say. I think that comes out of our process because most of the other critics are looking at what they call absolute quality or what Parker called absolute quality. And I think that um, some of the other critics have followed in that mode of thinking about wine where they're comparing, in their minds, they're comparing wines qualitatively. So this is how these cult Cabernets from Napa can be considered 100-point wines, because they're qualitatively almost perfect. I I think you hit on the perfect example, because I think Parker had a big hand in either rating or liking a style where I think winemakers possibly reacted to it as far as how they made wine. I'm saying it, not you. But I think as a consumer of your magazine and others, it wasn't always those wines. Yeah. They're not the wines I want to drink. Yeah. And I, I consider quality to be a baseline that I'm not going to recommend a wine if it's not a quality wine. But I'm not really concerned about perfection in a wine. I want a wine to be expressive, not perfect. Or stylistically it it could be more restrained than a fruit bomb, even yeah. if it's you know terrific. It's still a fruit bomb. Well, a fruit bomb isn't very expressive. It's just no. fruity, right? Yeah, it's over the top. Yeah, usually a little higher alcohol content. No, I don't think you'll find a lot of fruit bombs getting high scores in our magazine. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. So that that's that's a nice thing to know about the magazine. Um, so I guess you take the credit for the way you determined how you were going to taste wines. You, you no, I wouldn't say that. I, I'd say that... Um, you, you stewarded that I, I shepherded process. It, shepherded. I, I shepherded, absolutely. But there, was, um, there were several people involved with the magazine for a very long time. One was Michael Kinney, who was there for six months before I got involved and just retired from the magazine about three years ago. And he had a huge influence on the way we structured our tastings and the way that we presented the wines. Tara Thomas has been, she's the executive editor of the magazine, and she's with the, been with the magazine since ninety. But these are all people who had an approach. These are people who have had an approach, but also had a huge influence on the way that we taste wine, the way that we structure our policies, the way that we, in the way, the kinds of people we invite in to taste with us, They're, they are... Um, they are as much a part of the outcome of what what of what the magazine presents as as me. Right. But, uh, absolutely. I, I'm always curious about this. Wine and Spirits, an American magazine. You said initially it was set up out in California. I had John Bonet in here last week, oh, who sure. worked for the San Francisco Chronicle. Great writer. Great writer. I mean, a true writer. I'm always curious, are you obliged or do you feel compelled that you have to cover, in your case, American wines when John was in San Francisco, sort of looking north Napa, Sonoma? I think the whole trades become more global, but was that ever something you had to think about? I think about it in terms of who is reading the magazine and and who we're serving. So if we're 
if we're talking to an audience here in the United States and Canada mostly, um, we should be talking about the wines that they're drinking. And they're drinking a lot of California wine, a lot of New York State wine. I drink, I buy a lot of Finger Lakes wine because I live in Massachusetts. That's three hours from my house. I consider it my local wine. And I love some of those wines. If I lived in California, I would be drinking a lot of California wine because I'd consider it my local wine. And I've found wines from California that I absolutely adore and that I would stand up to anything from anywhere else around the world. I think that there are a lot of people who feel like American wines can be um, too big or too rich or too sweet. And there are many wines made in those styles, but there are also a lot of great wines being made that are very drinkable in a lighter, more delicate, more expressive style. You just have to search them out. And I think John was really great. John Bonet was great at searching them out. Very much so. And against the grain in a way. Well, you, you say against the grain. Well, I, I'd say against the commercial market. Because yeah, to because, me, that was the grain. But yeah, that's a fair clarification. Because, th- you know, there, there are a lot of people who really like these big, rich wines. And you can't fault the winemakers for making them, whether, you know, I, I, I have to question a lot of the winemakers who say, well, I don't really like to drink this style of wine, but I have to make it because people want it. It's crazy. I don't believe that. So I, we have a lot to cover, but I want to do three things quickly. I want to taste the wine because we have three or four bottles in front of sure. us. So let's pour some out. Okay. That's number one. You said you like Finger Lake wines because of proximity. I'm just curious. Not only proximity. I think that they make the best white wines in the States. Agree. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me every time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm joking. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is, and the reason I brought up proximity, is any feeling towards Long Island wines? I mean, you've probably been drinking Finger Lake wines longer because they've been there. And there's some great makers. Has Long Island come into the mix at all? I've tasted some beautiful Long Island wines. And I haven't tasted a lot consistently. And Not there yet. Not there yet for me. I think that um, as someone who's fascinated by soil, the Finger Lakes really appeals to me because I, I remember the first time I, I went there for wine. I'd been there for other reasons. But I, the first time I went there for wine, I went for a run down... There's a, there's a road down by Glenora that goes down to the lake. And behind Glenora, as you run down that road, you come to a waterfall. And you can see basically six stories high of shale. You can see all the layers of, of, the, of so the ground. So the shale plays a big part Huge. in the uh, terroir as far as where the wine's growing. Huge. It's and very it, characteristic. It really it. has... It, it, it has Can't say that about Long Island. Which are... I get it. It's it's a different kind of soil. But in it's the final analysis, yeah. it's a fair you know assessment. You know that's what differentiates. All right, so let's pour some wine and okay. The I'll first get thing, it. the first thing I'm going to pour for you is a little bit strange. I'm and, into strange. And it's not in. Um, I mean, I'm 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 making excuses for it because it's, you don't have to. Well, first of all, it's it's a wine that never was sulfured. It's been in bottle for three years, so it's so our listeners know sulfur is used as a preservative to keep the wines less in Europe, more here. Some people claims it's what gives you the headache. Yeah, but sulfur is also a natural byproduct of fermentation, right. so you can't really have a wine without sulfur. But 
some people over sulfur wines. Right. This wine was not sulfured at all by the winemaking. It's called what's it's what's called a pepeño from Chile. Pepeño is the grape or the no. the type of wine. Um, the grape is pais. Spell it. P a i s. Like country. Pais. Like country. Right. Yeah. It was the, the original mission. We call it the mission grape in in California. So it's the original grapes brought over by the Spanish conquistadors, and it is traced back to the Canary Islands from Chile as um, Listan Preto. So people may have tasted some Listan Preto wines right. from the Canary Islands. Sounds same familiar. same thing. Um, in this case, these these vines are upwards of three to four to four to five hundred years old wow. in terms of their root systems. So they've been cut back and cut back and but their their root systems have been there for all those years. And so they're some of the oldest vines on the planet. And they were ignored for many, many, for literally for the last 200 years in Chile, um, just as used as bulk wine. So talk to me about um, availability and price. So color-wise, it's uh, like a cherry red, not deep, but a nice color. Very interesting nose. Availability, you're not going to find this wine. This you're is, not? Okay. Yeah. So this, this um, is a treat to taste. I think that I think he might have an importer now. This is Huaso de Sozal. So Huasos are mm. um, what people people have. Um, I don't know if you've seen. You, you would see Louis Antoine Lutz wines here. Um, he also makes Pepeños, or actually now he doesn't make them anymore. He sells about 12 different Pepeños from different growers. Are you still surprised that there are wines, wines like this, that don't necessarily have representation, or there's wines out there that could use good distribution or, you know, brought into a country? Well, I'm surprised that there's not more curiosity about these wines. Um, I want to talk about raw natural wine a little yeah. later, because oh, this is curiosity. A, this is a raw it natural is, wine. Okay, so yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. I want to stay on... Um, David, why don't you come in and try this wine with us? David, our engineer. So what, what I love about this wine, and, and actually I'm, it's, it's got a lot of volatility, but I'm surprised, I, I'm surprised that it's still in such good shape. It's in great shape. Give me, um, so not nose, but give me taste descriptors. To me, it's got a very bright cherry flavor. And it's also got a lot, but not of, an overpowering. No, like, it's not fruity Dr. at all. Pepper it's really cherry. It's really an earthy. It's it's mainly an earthy wine. Really nice. And it's I, what I love about it is the delicacy of the tannin, and the persistence of the flavor is really you know it just it doesn't have any sort of aggressive nature to it. It's just a really gentle, friendly wine, and it's the kind of wine you can drink. It's it's designed as the kind of wine you can just drink a lot of. It's a country wine. For the, the What's people. a good good food pairing? Um, I had this wine when I, this is this is made by Renan Cancino in a little town about fifty kilometers down a dirt road, the town of Sozal, in Maule, in it's all dry farmed area. So the area is called the Secano Interior in Chile, and he served this to me at his house with braised lamb. Mm. Awesome. Holds up to it. Awesome. It was braised lamb with some um, sautéed onions and then French fries on top. Lamb's a little gamier than pork and beef. Yeah. This was this, really it was really beautiful lamb. That's a that's yeah. a good good pairing. This would be a nice gift. Mm. 
All right, so we're going to continue to drink this and other wines. I wanted to ask you a few other things about the uh, magazine. I think the magazine has established itself with some very interesting features, and I'll roll them off and we'll try to get into them. You do a restaurant poll, which I think has gotten bigger and more influential. You feature best new sommeliers, and we know that restaurants used to be meccas and palaces, and then the chefs became rock stars. Now the sommeliers sort of are having their time now. So you do uh, best new sommeliers. You do wineries of the year, which gives any reader an opportunity to get a long snapshot of what's going on there. And towards the end of the year, you do the top 100 wines, supported by a tasting event that readers can go to, pay, and really have an opportunity to be exposed. Exactly. So let's talk about... Let's talk about the restaurant poll first, because that's something, when you asked before about what I did to change the magazine when I purchased it, that was really the first... Thing, the first major change that I made. Didn't exist? It did not exist. Um, I had a friend, um, Ward Wilson was his name, he had been at Opinion Research, um, which was another, you know, there, were, there was Gallup and Opinion Research. There were a bunch of um, polling organizations in Princeton. And so I went to Ward and I said, help me put together some kind of poll that we could do to, um, for the magazine. And we, we determined that we'd look at, at the times it got, was really the most popular restaurant resource for... What year are we talking? 1989. 89. Um, so we went to all the Zagat guides and picked out the 40 most popular restaurants in all the cities that Zagat covered. And we asked those restaurants what their 10 best-selling wines were. So it was the best-selling wines in the most popular restaurants, most popular wines in the most popular restaurants. And we've done that for... We've added to the list every year. So now we poll about 3,600 hundred restaurants or so in about how many cities oh all around the country all around yeah dozens yeah um and we get maybe somewhere between 250 and 450 responses and we and we ask them detailed questions about what's selling in their restaurants by by the bottle Wait, so by you're the glass, asking by... you're this great established magazine you're asking a restaurant to provide information which could only help everyone yeah and that's the percentage response? Oh yeah, and getting that getting that information out really? of them. Well, first of all, the people who respond are really really high level restaurants. So we're we're not we're not asking any quality we're not good. asking any restaurant to be to be participating. So we're we're selective about and there are a lot of restaurants that say we want to participate and we say no, we don't allow it. We just want the people we're requesting information from. So we it's a it's a narrow audience of it's a narrow um, a narrow group of, of restaurants that we're asking. So the people, the kind of people that respond are Le Bernardin, um, Gramercy Tavern, um, out in, in California it would be Republique or um, Chez Panisse or things, people like this. With, with so great wine service. Getting, getting those kinds of restaurants to both share their information and take the time to do it is very difficult, which is why we're the only magazine that does this. Because it's a huge undertaking. And nobody's in the mood to do it for another magazine at this point, I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah. And so it's because we have the data for 28 years now, it's a really fascinating way to see trends in the business. And you can see the trends actually before they happen. Everyone talks about Sideways being the driver of the Pinot Noir phenomenon. 
but we saw Pinot Noir growing, 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 growing three years before Sideways. And then when Sideways hit, they, it, it, it exploded. It was ripe for the But it, was, it had already been growing significantly right. be, for three years before then. We watched the Merlot craze come and go. We watched Pinot come and explode. We've watched all sorts of different trends. Like right now, the big change is that people aren't selling wine off their list anymore. They're selling wine as, as part of tasting menus and as pairings, which didn't really exist at all two is or three years ago. mostly by the glass or not necessarily? Most of it's by the glass, okay. but they're selling very expensive wine right. that way. They're cracking open serious bottles yeah. with a lot of thought to the food. Mm-hmm. If you take a, does Le Bernardin do that? Uh, most everybody is doing that. Right, because you know. you're talking about incredible food, expensive food, an incredible wine yeah. list. And it's also a way for the for the diner to come in and just say, right. I'm in your hands. I would trust the restaurant yeah. like that. Exactly. Yes. So that's been a real, um, that's a major identifier for us, that the restaurant poll is, is and I, it's a, a big part of our identity. I think it serves the consumer well, and I think it serves the industry. It I does. Mean, I, I think it has sort of that double edge to mm-hmm. it. Um, if you want to know trends, you could take a look at that. Yeah. Just and trust, trust those restaurants. And for a consumer, we do an event here in New York that's a tasting of the most popular wines, and they're all the wines that consumers love. What is that event? Uh, it's called Top of the List, and it happens in April. Okay. And um, it's very different from our Top 100 event in Open San Francisco. Open to the public? Yes. You, you could buy a ticket. Absolutely, okay. yeah. You'll have to get in touch with me because we promote events. Okay, great. So I'll remind you. Um, so that's the restaurant poll. Uh, you know, it has a, a place in the market, and it's certainly unique. Mm-hmm. I would guess the top 100 wines is after the process of tasting all the wines we discussed. And it's actually, we, we do the top 100 wines, but the ones that, that we feature at the top tasting. 100 event are the, the top wines from each of the top 100 wineries. So we, in, in our annual... In our annual issue, um, the buying guide, we profile 100 wineries that perform best over the year. And as I mentioned before, it's based on a number of different criteria. So each one of them will have a very high-scoring wine, and we'll ask them to pour that wine. Some of those wines are very rare, very esoteric, and extraordinarily beautiful. But you got to cover them. We love to cover them. Right. So we ask them to pour that wine and a wine of their choice. Nice. And... That is much more of a trade event because for a lot of consumers, it's just completely overwhelming. Um, for a lot of the more successful consumer events are much more brand-driven. And these are this, this will include some big brands, but it will be a lot of brands that people haven't heard of that are making extraordinary wine. Great exploration. Exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to discover. And some very high-level consumers come to it. It's about 700 people altogether. And it's limited because we only have so much wine that we can get out of. You know, these, a lot of these are very rare wines that we're demanding that the wineries pour. Right. So we can't really do more than 700 people. But it's, um, it's a really great opportunity to taste incredible wine. So... In this context, let's just talk about scheduling a second. You publish how many issues a year? We publish eight a year. Eight a year. And Six of them are bi-monthly issues with tastings in them. Okay. We publish one issue a year that is our, um, it's really a project that, it's more like a book. And I brought a copy of it to show you, um, John Bonet's actually in it. 
Is that? Let me see which one that is. This is our fall issue. Ah, conversations and tastings. Yeah, and so each year we do a different project. This year we asked fifty different people to talk about six wines from their from from a, a region that they knew well. So this says first annual insiders guide. So this yeah. is the first. We've we've actually done that. We've done that fall issue since nineteen. But now you sort of branded it. This but we branded it as an insiders guide it. because it was. These were all the. Ins, this was the insiders' love of their particular region and and how they would share it with with a reader. So it's a great opportunity to get the perspective of a lot of people exactly. that are very close to yeah. wine all the time. So there's a huge amount of information in that particular issue. And then and then you, we and then we do the buying guide which is a basically comprehensive. It looks at it looks back over the entire year. And that's sort of a timeless thing. You could buy that and hold on to that yeah. for months. And it also gives you profiles of 100 wineries, so it's like a book. Both of these two issues are like books. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and the current issue is on the newsstands. I think it's a comprehensive look at champagne. Exactly. Which is good timing for the holiday seasons. Mm-hmm. And I brought a champagne with me to taste with which you. Which we'll get to. So the wine is available at newsstands. And if you want to look online. It's at wineandspiritsmagazine.com. And so you'll see a whole. A whole complement of offerings and articles and information there. We have a lot of articles online that are free to people. Do you have a paid um, feature to that, too? So um, there's a lot of information that's there for people to look at for free. But then for subscribers, subscribers can look at the entire database of wines going back to 2002. So um, the searchable database is something that you have to be a subscriber to to be able to Very well worth it. Because after talking to you for a while, the database is fairly extensive. It's very extensive. So yeah. you're going to get a, a pretty good shot at you know what you're looking for. All right. So it, it's hard to stop at the magazine, but we'll kind of wind in and out of it. What I wanted to talk to you about is 2016. Mm-hmm. Let's look back a little. Let's look at wine trends. So what... And, and you could do this overall and in the past year. What changes have we seen in the industry of late, trend-wise, change-wise? Well, a- anything obvious? There are a lot of obvious changes in terms of consolidation that continues on and on, and you know, in industry talk. But in terms of things that are of interest to me, and I think to wine and spirits readers, and probably to your audience, are things like the raw wine fair coming to New York for the first time. This is the kind of wine, this um, Rosso de Sazal is the kind of wine that you would taste at the Raw Wine Fair. And the fact that um, the fact that natural wine, or what's being described as natural wine, is becoming more and more of a phenomenon in the market and a, and a counterpoint to some of the more commercial styles of wine. So I've seen that since I've done this show. I went to the Raw Wine Fair because it was here in Brooklyn. Sure. And the participation by winemakers was incredible and the participation by consumers. I mean, it's definitely here. It's been going on. Brooklyn's kind of famous for some wine bars, Four Horsemen, June, you know, that feature natural company downtown in the city and all of that. And now Rouge Tamat just opened with an pa- amazing Pascaline list. moved yeah. downtown mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, she's been a, besides Chenin Blanc, she's been a mm-hmm. big, big proponent. 
I can't answer this from looking at the magazine, but has your coverage shifted towards that? Not yet? A little? We've been covering Bidenamic wines since the early 90s. Um, the wine that the, the champagne I bought it, brought for you is a Bidenamic champagne. Is um, it a grower? It's a Bi- grower, okay. yeah. Um, we do not politicize our wine recommendations and say that we're going to recommend these wines more highly or those wines more highly because we don't know when we're tasting whether wine's organic or biodynamic So the or movement's not. here. There's makers. You handle it like yeah. any other wine. And so we handle it like any other wine. We find that for our critics who are looking for wines that are expressive of a place, that wines that are grown biodynamically tend to be, when they are successful, tend to be some of the most expressive wines that you can find. And so we talk about that in our tasting notes. And we, we use our tasting notes to talk about how wines are grown and how they are produced to show how they're grown, rather than just talking about all the different flavors that you might randomly find in a wine. We try to limit <coughs> all those flavors to maybe one sentence and use the rest of the tasting note to really talk about the structure of the wine and how it comes out of where it's grown and where it, how, how it's grown. So is the movement... There's obviously a lot of great winemakers, a lot of great wines. It's pretty spread out. There's wines from Georgia now. Sure. Vermont. Um, natural, biodynamic, organic wines as, I don't know if I want to say category, but here to stay and grow? I think that there is there are different segments of wine drinkers in this, in the, this market is growing hugely. And we are the biggest wine-consuming country in the world now. And within that vast market, there are segments. And a lot of people say that there's this American taste for big fruit bomb wines. Well, that's one segment. There's another segment that would not touch those wines at all and would drink a wine like half this. Half of Brooklyn. Half of Brooklyn okay. and, and many, other, many right. other cities. And um, so there... There are people who are looking for wines that are expressive and delicious and drinkable, and there are people who are looking for wines that are fruity, rich, and sweet. It, it, they, they're both called wine, right? but they're going to the appeal end. to different audiences. In the end. Um, we're going to have to take a break soon, then we'll come back. We'll finish up. I have a thing called the wine list. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. Sure. But one of the last questions I want to ask you as a consumer, as an editor and a publisher, and what's going on in the world is... How has the internet and social media changed the way you do your business as the editor and publisher of a magazine, as a consumer, you know, somebody who's always looking for the next wine or what other people are saying? How has it changed it? I mean, I think for the good, but I'm very curious. Social media and the internet are a really interesting phenomenon for a publisher because, you know, especially since I've been at this business since 1984 originally, um, it's made it's made publishing as a journalist very, very difficult. It's made publishing as a um, as a, someone from the general public very easy. So, I think that we're seeing throughout whether it's in wine or whatever journalism you're trying to accomplish, um, journalists are struggling to find not only a way to make money, but to find an audience. 
And there, in, in terms of what's going on right now in, culturally in our country, there's a lot of questions about whether people are concerned about facts and truth at the moment. Big time So um, journalism is about shared truths and shared facts and assessing them. And It's more democratized, but that is an issue, a sensitive issue. Well, I, I think that— I mean, that, you, you pride I, I yourself that, on— I think that the, in, the Internet is not necessarily democratized. Um, I think that— for me personally, when I see people walking down the street looking at their phones, I see them as slaves to their phones. Yes. And I don't think that's democracy. And no. I don't think that we, what we I just meant experienced more is democracy. There were more voices. In the old there, days, there was Parker, Wine Spectator. You guys have been around. There are lots now more there voices. are legitimate bloggers. Yeah. And, you know where John Bonet works. Punch. And, and there, there's some very interesting voices. There's right. a lot of that, noise. That's the part I meant. Yeah. I agree with you. you there know, is a lot of noise. And sorting you, through the noise is very difficult and challenging. But you and have as, to as embrace a user, it. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, we we use it as a tool. I don't think you have a personal Twitter account. I do not. You nor, don't. Nor do I have a Facebook account. No. I don't have a Facebook account. But that. Um, I I don't feel the need to embrace social media. We use social media as a company, which you should. Um, and several. Well, basically everyone everyone other than me on staff is involved in social media, but that's their choice. Um, and it is, um, I have very mixed feelings about social media. I think that it's, I don't personally have time to spend on that in my life. So, so I had Gary Vaynerchuk on a couple of weeks ago, and you know Gary. I know Gary well. I mean, yeah. that's like his whole thing. Yeah. It would be great sometime next year, maybe to have the both of you in here, because I believe and trust your conviction and, you know, how you conduct the business and your perspectives on that. And I feel the same way about Gary. I have huge and respect for I think for you Gary. would hear two true voices yeah. and a good balance. Because yeah. for some reason, Gary thinks, you know, his way is the only way. But we'll leave it at that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to subject Josh to the wine list. And then we're going to taste through the remaining wines that we have here and go over a few things. You're listening to The Grape Nation, and we're talking to Josh Green, editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine. We'll be right back. And this one is Walking Like a Cowboy by Tax Star. We'll be right back. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin make this gorgeous Alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sirchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sirchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. 
back. My guest is Josh Green, editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine, available at your newsstand. Go run out and pick up an issue. You can get the uh, wineries of the year and the champagne issue right now. I want to subject John to our wine list. I want to get his personal perspective on a few things. I'm ready. We've been talking about the industry. John, not John, I'm sorry. Josh has not been prompted on this. So we're going to ask him a bunch of questions. Nothing too uh, difficult here. What are you drinking now? Is there something in the last week, month that you've been going back to? Is it this Papino? What is it? Well, I would drink more Papino if I could get access to it. Right. But um, there isn't much of it around. At at home, I tend to drink Finger Lakes wines. Okay, you said so, that earlier. Yeah. And that's really so that's something honestly, that's what, that's honestly what I tend to drink. Give me yeah. one or two Finger Lake wines to look out for. Um, Herman Wiemer Riesling is amazing. W-E-I-M-E-R? Yep, W-I-E-M-E-R. Yeah, I think it's okay. W-I-E. Um, I before E except in Germany. Yeah, I, I always get confused. I, I might be spelling it wrong myself. Right. Um, Bloomer Creek. Makes a really great wine called White Horse, which is a um, after Cheval Blanc. It's a Cabernet Franc. Um, the wines that that um, Red Tail Ridge is putting out, they make a Dornfelder, they make a Terraldigo, they make um, some Lemberger. They make some really interesting wines there. Nice. So there's some cool red wines happening, and um, then there's some other really great producers like Anthony Road. Do um, you know Chris Matheson? Um, Chris is, is Bellwether. He, yes, Bellwether is going to come on the show. He makes some great cider a little later in uh, first quarter mm-hmm. when it gets warmer to talk about some Finger Lakes wines. Yeah, but th- those are those are some interesting picks, and we'll post those. And then I drink a lot of Loire wines. Can't go wrong. and Beaujolais. Can't go wrong. Yeah, Cru Beaujolais. Cru Beaujolais. Yeah, okay. I had a I had a wine at Freak's Mill. Um, with a friend, Mark Tarlov, we were there because he's also a big fan of, of Beaujolais. And they had a, a Dutrev Parcel Champagne, they called it, from 2015. It was by far the most amazing Beaujolais I've ever tasted in my life. Really? And it was at the level of a Grand Cru Burgundy, nice. as far as I was concerned. It was gorgeous wine. All right, next question. Favorite wine and food pairing? Whew. Something you go back to, and I always say this, you can't say champagne and oysters. You can't say muscadet and oysters. We've had chicken and Pinot Noir. Gary Vaynerchuk had Captain Crunch and Alsace wine, sweet Alsace wine. I probably like Rioja and Blood Sausage. Okay. Blood Sausage made in Spain. Yeah. Okay. Or Chorizo. Yeah. I mean, so I would, that's I would their say charcuterie, nice sliced meats. I would say if, if nice I'm looking for, if I'm looking for like a really really great dynamic pairing, I would go with a, a well-aged Rioja like a Lopez de Redia from a, I mean, from a good vintage back 2001 or, right. or before. A little funk to it. And, and Chorizo or, or um, Morthia. That's yeah. a good pairing. 
Now, this may be a tough question for you to answer, so try to weave your way through it. Favorite wine restaurant or bar? At the moment, Rouge Tomat. Rouge Tomat. Yeah, I think they're She's list- so committed to... Well, first of all, I'm, you know, one of 10 million great fans of Pascaline. Right. Um, but Who's coming on the show in, I think, March. But she has an amazing team there. They have put together probably the, the list that I want to order more wines off of, of any list that I've seen ever. And the restaurant Once you itself, cut through the Chenin Blancs, right? Oh, there's plenty more. I know. It's just, I mean, there's... That is a passion. They have, they have the, I think it's the Cachica Maravilla um, that they have there that's um, a... What are, Peño. I just, the three bottles, I just opened the second bottle. Oh, this the second is one, the, the second Australian. One is Naked on Roller Skates, yeah. Naked on Roller Skates, very fun label. It's a blend of... Shiraz and Mataro. Mataro, which I asked you, is, is Morved. Morved. So we is have a French blending Rhone grape. Our next issue, um, we have an article on Morved in California, on Morved in Chateauneuf, and an old and a, and a sort of a little history tale of Morved in in Berkeley. And so it's sort of the next issues are our Morved issue. If we've ever we've never had one before, that'll be great. And these people, um, these people, they're, they're three young. Three young punks, they're called. Um, some young punks, I guess they're called. And um, it's Colin McBride, Jen Gardner, and Nick Bourne are the three guys, three people who make this wine. And it's from the Shiraz is from very hard clay, sort of they call it cracking black clay soil, and the Mataro is from sand soil in McLaren. And I was blown away by this wine. I think it's absolutely Great. beautiful. It's a, I brought this because it is. The kind of wine that's coming out of Australia that's so different from what we think about as, again, you know, the, the, the same kind of mentality about thinking about California wine as only these big blockbuster reds thinks about Australia as, as huge, boozy Shiraz. This is a – this is just, I think, a magnificent wine. It's delicious. Very much more delicate than you'd expect yes. from, from a wine from McLaren Vale and much more expressive of McLaren Vale than most of what you see. So just tell me the wine again, because I don't it's, have the bottle in front of me. It's Some Young Punks, Naked on Roller Skates, 2015. Naked on Roller Skates, 2015. And give me a retail range. Uh, the retail price is $30. Okay. So there's a good uh, price point. All right. Favorite all-time wine. You got the Oh Wow wine. Is it a birth wine? Is it when you got married? Somebody put it. Is it that Galician wine? That's a question I really cannot answer because... Give me a couple. I'll give you a few. Um, 2002 Champagne, there are a few 2002 Champagnes that, you know, between the Cristal from... The two Cristals from Rotor, the Rosé Cristal from Rotor in 2002 is... is incredible. ...is incredible. The Boulanger 2002, the Krug 2002 is mind-blowing. Um, so there are some 2002 Champagnes that are among the best and wines ever tasted available. In yeah. Price, pricey, but available. 2011 ports are off generally the, off the charts. Would you say the 11 ports are among the best ports in the last 10, 15, 20 port 50 year releases? Years. 50. Yeah, since, so, since, since 63 probably. If you're into port, you took your eye off the ball, or you're getting into it, go out and buy the 11s. Yeah, and in fact, we just did. I just wrote an article in the December issue about the LBV ports from 2011. Because the LBV ports are off the charts, and usually LBV is like, so, what, right. who cares? When that's happening, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so those are, those are two very good recommendations. 
This you are very qualified to answer, and it's something you do all day. I ask all my guests, best wine under 15 bucks retail that you know of, red and a white. So what am I bringing to a party? What's my 27-year-old kid putting out on the table when he's trying to impress a bunch of other couples and all of that? For me, the best white wine under $15 is um, Quina d'Avaleda, their Quina d'Avaleda wine, their, their basic Vigneur Verde that's, that's their estate wine. It right, costs, so I have no idea what you just said, so you have to okay. slow down and walk this is, me through this. Okay, so this is a wine from Vigneur Verde, which is on the north coast of Portugal. V-I-N-H-O? Yep. V-E-R-D-E. Yes, exactly. Verde is green, Vigneur yep. green wine. Yeah, so it's green wine. It's, it's called green wine because it's from the coast, very rainy area. Very cool area. Okay. Hard to ripen the grapes. Um, this is an estate-grown wine for $9 a bottle. And it's called? Quinta, which means Q-U-I-N-T-A, farm. Q-U-I-N-T-A. Quinta. Da. Da, D-A. Avaleda. A-V-E-L-E-D-A. You can find this anywhere. So it's a great wine. It, I mean, I've had people serve this at, the, at their weddings. I mean, it's just... it's Good food wine? It's a brilliant food wine. Talk about a wine for oysters. Right. It's, I mean, that, that for me is my go-to white. That's a great um, one. Under 10 bucks. Yeah, under 10 bucks. How about a red? For red, whew, um, that's, that's much more difficult to find a, a really good red under $15. I think that there are some Beaujolais that, that used to be under $15, but are now probably creeping up. Yeah. But you could you used to be able to buy a decent crew Beaujolais for under fifteen dollars, and I think if you shop around, you probably can. So I would say if you can find a Morgon for eighteen bucks, you're okay. doing really well. And that's and that so that's Morgon what I would, from yeah. Beaujolais. Beaujolais, yeah, a okay. crew Beaujolais, yeah, crew Beaujolais, Renier, Morgon, Fleury, right, yeah, that's a good one. Um, all right, last question: Do you have? a favorite wine writer? Is there somebody you've admired through the years, before, during, you know, your tenure? Interesting. Um, I would say that for a long time, I would say Gerald Asher and Rod Smith. Um, Gerald Asher for very um, almost classical style of writing. And Rod, when he was writing, he's not writing anymore, but when he was writing... He wrote really beautiful articles on terroir. Nice. Those are good ones. Um, all right. So there, there are your six questions, Josh. You did a yeoman's job. Fantastic. I thank you for that. Um, every week we do a feature called the Weekly Wine Sip. You have been gracious enough to bring in three bottles of wine. We've tasted a couple of interesting wines that you don't see every day. And I think a good way to celebrate Josh being here... And the fact that this is our last show of the year. Oh, congratulations. And that we are approaching the holiday season. Josh brought in a champagne, um, a grower champagne. Usually I have the description here, but I want you to walk and talk me through what you're opening and what we're drinking. Sure. So this is Benoit LaHaye. Spell LaHaye. L-A-H-A-Y-E. I'm probably... LaHaye. I'm okay. probably... Just completely destroying the pronunciation. Well, you could have said um, Benoit. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> right. And this is their Brut Nature, which is their simple, um, their simple Brut without any dosage. Um, and it's a Grand Cru wine. So They're, without any dosage means they added no sugar? Um, or Brut Nature means that their 
that there that there's not they they didn't they didn't um, they didn't balance it in the end. They they're they're selling it sort of naked. Okay. Um, they may have added very little, but in, in this case, I'm not sure. Does that but make it drier or not it necessarily? Would be, it would be it would be it would be drier. But the key is that as a grower, this is they went organic and then they went binamic. They were certified as binamic in 2010. So as a grower, by farming very carefully, they can ripen their fruit much more effectively than if they weren't farming that way. Right. So they're getting sweetness from the fruit rather than needing to get it from adding a dosage. Let's taste it. What's the, it's a non-vintage? This is non-vintage. And, and when it's got do you reserve think it was wines, bottled? Um, it's got reserve wines in it. This is, that um, goes back to... I'm not sure if they say on the bottle yeah, when it was... Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. There's a there's a code on here, but I can't really tell what it would be. You want to drink it out of that? Yeah, I'm not a snob. David, you want to come in and uh, try these wines? You're anxiously waiting outdoors. We'll make a toast to the uh, end of the season. All right, so. Josh. So they have they have about twelve acres of land in Boozy and Ambonay, and, and it's an estate grower wine. Exactly. Okay. So it's only from their own grapes. So what kind of output, as far as cases, bottles? Is it like a eight hundred case champagne or more? I don't know the exact case it's number. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. You don't you know yeah, because yield. 12, twelve acres is not going to produce a lot no. of wine. All right. So it's got that beautiful classic golden color on the weekly wine sip. We do a deeper analysis. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's the room, but it's it's got a little tint to it, which I it's not that hay. Mm-hmm. It's almost not pinkish, but but a it's little, almost it's almost golden. Yeah, yeah. Let me and see. that would be I think that that would probably be an indication of the ripeness of the of the grapes. Nice bubbles on the nose. You help me with this. I get a little biscuit. Definitely biscuit. I mean, I'm getting I'm getting the lees the lees autolysis on it. But it's a very pointed. It's not. It's not a broad kind of lesotolysis. It's a much more precise kind of scent. It's a medium body. I don't know if we do mouth feels with champagne, but it's got a nice. See what I like about it is that the fruit. It's got a lot of flavor depth. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when you taste champagne, it's really one dimensional. And it's it's fresh or or um, pushed by the bubbles or whatever, but it's this not. This is not pushed by the bubbles. It's not, um, and the the bubbles are very well integrated, and the flavor depth is really there. You get you get a lot of lasting flavor of, of some earthiness, some golden fruit, some you know, you, you can taste the ripeness of the fruit. What are golden fruits? Um, well, I I think it it almost has almost like a, a white peach kind of flavor. Um, but it's not that sweet, so I wouldn't go there. But um, I, I it's don't. Not that sweet. You're right. I don't. I don't necessarily believe in trying to compare. You know, we we did a we did a tasting once where we put a bunch of fruit on the table. We had about 15 people on a table, and and got strawberries and raspberries and blueberries and mulberries and and peaches and plums and everything. And we tasted the plums, and everyone describes wine as being plummy. We tasted the plums, and we said it's not that. It's not that. You know, so the curious one is currants. Yeah, P 
people eat plumps. They don't eat a lot of currants. Yeah. And currants are used as a big wine descriptor for mm-hmm. big, deep Bordeaux's and yeah. Cali cabs and all of that. Did you taste currants? In this? Oh, no. In no, that, in that in tasting? That, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there are wines that taste like currant, but it's I, not I necessarily... They tend to be fairly vegetal. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what else with this? It, it's... Um, again, what I like about it is the length of flavor. It's to me, it's it's refreshing as well as being um, as, as well as being deeply flavorful. Right, a little and, complexity and freshness. Yeah. It's, it's got not, a lot of. It's mostly Pinot Noir, so you're you getting tell. so you're getting that richness from the Pinot. You can tell. And I'm getting out of my seat to pour more wine. Now let's talk about food pairing. Does this wine, because it's a little different, I mean, the blend, mostly Pinot, and the characteristics are not, you know, necessarily that classic house champagne and all that. Mm-hmm. What's a good food pairing for this? I would think that it would be really good with, um, like, Jamon Serrano, mm. um, because it's got, a, like, a salinity, a saltiness to it. Yep. Um, I don't think I would want it with oysters, because it's too, the flavors are too deep and, and earthy. Um, I would I would put it with more earthy kinds of foods. I, I mean, you could even you could prosciutto. even serve, you could serve it with prosciutto. You could even probably serve it with with a roast veal or something. Right, it'll um, hold up to that. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, the flavors are pretty intense on it. Yes, I, I, I like it's it more, a lot. It's more vinous than most champagne. Yes, which is what you get from a, a from a biodynamic grower. What is the average retail on this? I th- I don't really know the exact price on this, but ballpark. I would, I would guess it's between fifty and sixty. Okay, so it's in the sort of the lower range that that good sweet spot of champagnes for quality. Yeah, that you is can, you can for buy a nice some, dinner, a gift. You can buy some damn good champagnes for forty to forty five dollars. If you if you if you look carefully, you can find some really good champagne for forty or forty five. So I I hesitate to ask you to rate this wine because you know the whole ratings discussion we had, but. This is a very good champagne. Have you tasted a lot of champagnes in this price range that are as interesting as this? I mean, does this stand out in the sense? Well, we recommended this wine when we tasted it for our December issue. Um, It stood out in, you know, when we taste champagne, we taste it by house. So we tasted a, a few of their wines. I think we tasted two or three of their wines. And this is one in the, I think they make a wine called Naturescence which comes in a magnum um, that did really well. That's a very, it's a higher level wine from them. Um, I would say it stands out for being, as, as I described, as Venus. Um, right. And so... That's its character and qua- whether, characteristic and quality yeah, that separates it. Whether you want to rate it qualitatively is another thing, but I, I think that it's a really interesting... Champagne's the most difficult wine to taste because... Most difficult to taste and probably, and less now than in the past, underrated in the sense of how much it's served beyond celebrations and all that. It's a great food wine. It pairs well. Your first pairing was somewhat non-traditional, you know, an Italian high-end sliced ham. You oh, know, I was uh, thinking Spanish ham. Hummus Spanish Serrano. ham, yeah. I meant. You mm-hmm. said Serrano. Yeah. That's my bad. Yeah. Um, you know, usually, like you said, oysters. This is not a good oyster wine. No, but it could be good with fish. It could be good with roast fish. Probably good um, with fried chicken. It would be great with fried chicken. Right? I mean, it would yeah. cut through the champagne and, and sh- Champagne and fries, it's hard to beat. You know, so, and actually, you asked, me before, you asked me before what I drink a lot of. I drink a lot of champagne. 
that's what that's that's my downfall. As you should. Yeah. All right. So for our listeners, just I'll pick the bottle up and let me tell you what we're drinking. Josh Green was kind enough to bring in the Benoit Lahey, L A H A Y E Champagne Grand Cru, Brut Netshore. Now the A Boozy in the corner is what the maker. No, Boozy is the town. Oh, it's B- Boozy Rains. Yeah. Boozy. Yeah. So Boozy is where they're based, Got and they, they have they're I think three out of their out of their five hectares are in Boozy, and then they have the rest are mostly in Ambonet. And I, I, I don't think you'll see this around a lot. No, um, you'll see it a lot in New York because in the, New York because the importer VOS the importer is based a, here, based yeah. out of New York. So look out for this. I love it, and uh, Josh. Sort of handpicked it, you know, curated it after tasting 14,999 wines. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, we have to bring this episode to a close. I think Josh and I can go on forever and ever. And I vow to have Josh back. Um, at the very least, I think it would be nice to make it an annual thing to have Josh come in towards the end of the year. I would love to come and talk with Gary. That would assess, be brilliant. Yeah. I would like to do that, too. That would be a octagon cage match. No time limit. <laughs> um, no gloves. With, no, Gar- with Gary, there are never gloves. No kicking. That's, that's <laughs> the only thing. All right, so I thank you, Josh Green. If you have a question, a wine happening, or an event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can follow us on Twitter, at Ben Ruby, or Instagram, at S Ben Ruby. What I'm going to get around during the holiday season when we take a little hiatus is organize everybody's wine list and postings and picks and get them up because the whole point of this show is to bring you, the listener, great wine information, which is why we say we bring wine to the people. So I will get to that, and I think Josh had a a big hand in helping us with that. Um, So we thank you, Josh, editor and publisher of Wine and Spirits magazine, available at your newsstand. Thank you to our engineer for a great season, David Tattashore, and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I just want to put a last plug in because it's still timely. This is our last show of the 2016 season, so thank you for joining us all season. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food and wine. Heritage needs your support during the big end-of-year fundraiser. A contribution in any amount not only supports HRN's 34 weekly programs, but also comes with member benefits. So if you like good food and wine, and you love good food and wine radio, make a donation today. As David said earlier, throw a little dough our way, will you? You can go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate that's heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate and anything you can give we appreciate I'm Sam Ben Ruby you've been listening to the Grape Nation and thank you for joining us
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.